This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. Garbage in, garbage out works in computers. It also works in your diet. If you take in bad quality food, you're not giving your body the tools to heal itself and to work properly. And stress is just one more thing your body has to tackle. Junk food is going to make it harder for your body to handle stress. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we'll discuss the stress of getting back to work and what you can do about it. We'll learn why the intention behind your workout matters. We'll also find out how technology is changing healthcare for seniors. And lastly, we'll hear about the importance of advanced care planning. But first, a little bit of business. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. Joel Thuna is a master herbalist and general manager of Purely Natural. He strives to improve the quality of the natural products in the market and passes along his knowledge of herbal remedies through lectures and articles. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I've enjoyed summer and it's time to get back to work. Yep. It's that time of year, Joel. I have work mares that I'm unprepared <laughs> for, for a law exam or I've missed a trial date and I'm not even practicing anymore. <laughs> so I know that my body is telling me and my mind is telling me that something isn't right. And I don't think I'm alone, right? We're all stressed out, aren't we? Oh, heck we are. We live in a stressful time. Let's be honest here. We've got information bombarding us 24-7, 366, never mind 365. And it's just insane how much is coming at us and we're supposed to digest it. It's at the point now where it's estimated that as much as 90% of all doctor's visits have at least some component of stress related to the visit. Most of us are in a perpetual state of panic. We're obsessed with being available. How many people do you know can't avoid checking their cell phone, social media? And- yeah, I'm doing it right now as we record. No, I'm not. No, it's true. I, you know, like I was watching TV with my wife, she said, you are incapable of watching TV without having your phone and checking yep. it incessantly. That's that's and, common. And try, I, try going to a restaurant and just sitting and having a meal with more than one person at the table and no one touched their phone. You know, we're making an effort now. Certainly, yeah, when it's my wife and I, you know, we, we're really not on our phones, but it's true. When you're in a group, there's always one yeah. who feels the need to answer every single phone call, feels the need to answer every single text. It's endemic. I and agree. The, and, and the thing is, they did a study and found that trying to give up an addiction to a phone is as difficult to do as a heroin addiction. They traced in the brain, it's very similar. Okay, so we're all stressed, but not all stress is necessarily bad. We do need it to function, right? Oh, yeah. 
We all do. And people like me, if I don't have stress of some level, I don't get anything done. So with me, stress, the right level of stress equals productivity, no stress, and I'm basically just an overgrown couch potato. I just don't get stuff done. Right. I'm a procrastinator by nature. Uh, and I need deadlines in order to, you know, one of the nice things about, uh, publishing a magazine and having a radio is the timelines are so tight. There's really no time to screw around, which is good, right? I mean, there is constant pressure to turn things around and that's okay. And, you know, our ancestors were wired a certain way to be wary of dangers. And, you know, that's just the way we are. I guess the difficulty becomes when you are always wary, when, when the background stress levels just never turn off. Correct. The, The key is finding out. Because we're all individuals, as the saying goes, and every one of us is different, the key is finding out where your optimum level of stress is, where you get stuff done, but you're not panicking. And at the same time, how much higher than that you can go and still be okay, and where your limit is where you no longer are okay. Right. And make sure that you do everything in your power to keep it anywhere from that optimal zone up to just below where you're no longer okay. Yeah, I think the notion of balance doesn't really exist with stress, but maybe equilibrium is the right term. You know, where where that where, sounds right. where you're able to function, uh, you know, on a day to day basis, and you're not really eating yourself up. Correct. And and people need to understand that there are ways to lower your stress. Some of them only temporary, some of them more on a preventative and full-time basis, but there are strategies and there are things people can do. It's not inevitable. Right. Okay. So let's start with the first one you mentioned, which is in the moment. What do you do or what would you recommend to somebody in dealing with stress in the moment when it's sort of really peaking? Well, all of us have moments where all of a sudden the stress just gets there and it's like, all of us have that. And some of us have it more frequently than others. What they found is when you feel it peaking or getting to the peak, start by taking deep breaths. Use your senses to your advantage as opposed to your disadvantage. Use what you hear, smell, taste, and touch to bring your levels down. For example, you can look at a calming picture, listen to your favorite song or soothing sound. Some people, for example, like the sound of waves. Ambient noise, yep. Some people like that. Enjoy a calming smell. Eat comfort food, hopefully something wholesome, as opposed to junk food. They rarely are, but yeah, okay. (laughs) Um, In my case, I would literally just hug a pet. I I have a pet lizard. I really enjoy just that's not a a That's not a euphemism, is it? No, no, it's a bearded dragon. You really really have a lizard? Okay. (laughs) I have a bearded dragon. Okay. Rex, wonderful lizard. And I find find my dog is a great stress reliever. If, If I'm focusing on an issue, and it tends to be sort of, I live in my head, you know, to get out of my head, a quick walk with my dog or, yep. play, or playing a, big, a game of tug of war is going to get me out of it like immediately. So I, I, I understand that. And the thing is, as we're all individuals, everyone has their own stress reliever that'll work that second. It may be something as silly as remembering a calming day that you had and just lying back in your chair, arms behind your head, yep. closing your eyes and just remembering that. But if it works for you, who cares? All that matters is it works for you. Find what works for you and do it. Right. I would say the only thing without eating a comfort food is 
if you find yourself constantly stressed out, you're going to find yourself constantly going to your comfort food, which is, it's an issue for me. You know, I, I'm a stress eater. So I would say, yes, you can treat yourself once in a while, but it can't be your go-to stress reliever if you're suffering from, from more stress than normal. Yes and no. And I'll use myself as an example. Okay. I'm a comfort eater also. But the big thing for me is I know what the bad ones are. I know what the good ones are. And I steer myself. For example, I always have in my house some Granny Smith apples. I'm stressed beyond belief. Sure, I'd love to go for the chocolate-covered whatever, yeah. but instead, I'll go for the Granny Smith, and it'll still calm me down and relax me. Okay. Well, you're a lucky man. The Granny Smiths don't do it for me, <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to gravitate towards the chocolate, the ice cream, the bad stuff, but whatever. Fair All right. Enough. All right. So uh, let's talk about preventing stress or, and what we can do if the stress becomes not sort of transactional, but more part of our life. So let's start with your expertise, which are supplements. Yes. Are, are there supplements that you would recommend to help with stress over time and how do they work? Definitely. There's a class of substances called adaptogens. They're herbs. Some of the more common ones are the ginsengs, which are Canadian, Imperial, and Siberian. Another adaptogen is ashwagandha, which is known as Indian ginseng. And what they do is they help your body adapt and handle stress. How do they do that? It's through a chemical process. Essentially, they just enable stress not to get to you as much. It's not as though if I'm feeling stressed because of this, I take this one. If I'm feeling stressed because of this, I take this one. If I'm feeling stressed because of this, I take this one. It's you find one that works for you. For example, myself, I can use imperial ginseng or Siberian ginseng. And it's not one is better than the other for me personally. It's just what I have in the house that day. And I, for example, I know the stressful times at my work. Right. What I will do on those months where it's going to be stressful. One of them, for example, for me starts in September and goes through till February. Okay. I'll take between three and four capsules every morning for that entire time. In the summer, I don't have that stress. I don't take it. Are there any contraindications for an adaptogen like ginseng? Is there anybody who shouldn't be taking them? You should be careful. Read the contraindications on the label. Specific ones have some concerns with blood pressure and other ones have some concerns with diabetes. Between the ones that are out there, you should be able to find one that works for you. And they're relatively inexpensive, right? This is not an expensive... Not overly expensive. You're probably talking under a buck fifty a day. And for an adult, when you said three capsules, what does that dosage work out to for, for an adult? Normally, uh, your average adult, depending on which one one you pick would be one to two capsules a day. Okay. I make them so I know exactly what I can handle because I test all my stuff. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> I go for three. I, I go a little hardcore. All right. I might need four. All right. Um, what other supplements would you recommend? Definitely make sure that you've got a balanced diet. Okay. And if you don't have a balanced diet, and being quite honest, there's no one out there who has a fully balanced diet. It's just True. not possible anymore. True. You want to top up with the B vitamins, mm -hmm. which are the ones your body uses up when you're stressed. It's not that they prevent stress. Your body just uses them up, so you need more of them, particularly vitamin B12. Okay. And when you're doing vitamin B12, make sure you use the active form, which is methacobalamin. There are multiple forms out there, and the active form your body can use directly. It doesn't have to convert it, so you're not putting any stress on your body to actually help you combat stress. Right. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> All right. Other than vitamins, uh, you espouse essential oils, right? I do. I'm a big believer in the health benefits of essential oils. There's been a lot of research done on essential oils, and they have found that 
the sense of smell has a profound effect on your stress level amongst everything else. Uh, for example, memory. Um, how, many, how many of us, in fact, everyone will smell something and automatically it takes them back right. to a different time. It's evocative. Yep. It, it is, and it's wonderful. It can trigger memories of people, places, and moments, and more importantly, that emotions. If you pick the right smell, your memory will bring back the emotion of that time mm-hmm. when you had that smell last or the strongest, and it'll actually take you back. And it's as though you're transported back to that emotion. We, we can't go and buy emotions or emotional <laughs> smells in the store, but there are, there are some oils that, that we can purchase. And what would you recommend? The ones that are, are commonly used for stress are lavender, bergamot, ylang-ylang, one of the chamomiles, specifically chamomile German, because there are other chamomiles, clary sage, jasmine, and rose. Okay. And do they all work the same way or like why those specifically? They've all been found to work on your nervous system to calm people down. Okay. Now, there's a couple caveats here. One, remember, always use 100% pure essential oils, not absolutes. Absolutes are dilutions. Right. And these are really, really strong. You only literally need a whiff or a drop. No so, more okay. to smell so for, of any of them. For those who are ignorant, and I count myself amongst that group, how when you say applying an essential oil, what does that Not mean? A, that, you wouldn't apply it. So, so what would you do? You would actually, for example, what I've done before is I've actually taken a bottle of Ylang Ylang, put one drop on a cotton ball, yeah. and just put that cotton ball on the edge of a desk. How long would you need to be exposed to the smell before it's going to have the curative effects? In my case? Yeah. I can start feeling a reduction in my stress within 30 to 40 seconds. If it's a pure, good quality, 100% pure essential oil, it will linger for easily one to two hours. Okay. I'm familiar with the smell of lavender, but are all those essential oil smells pleasant? They are all pleasant to me, but everyone is different. The ones I gravitate towards are lavender, ylang-ylang, and German chamomile, because I like those. I was meeting with someone yesterday who could not stop espousing bergamot, which is a floral orange smell, and they love it. The, The key here, though, is some of these are not cheap. Like, if you love the smell of roses, great. Pure rose essential oil, get a mortgage. Really? (laughs) Oh, it's insane. And Well, give give, give me an example. Like, are we talking $20, $30 for a vial or what? Pure rose essential oil, 10 ml or 5 ml. Forget about 10 or 5. 1 ml, you're talking thousands US. Oh, God. Yeah. It's in the category. You're not going to use that. Okay, what about lavender? Lavender... 30 ml, 50 ml, you're talking 20 bucks. <laughs> okay, that, that's more like it. I think we'll go with the lavender and The skip ones the rest. I go to yeah. are lavender, ylang ylang, and the German chamomile because they work for me. I love them and, they and they're affordable. The, they don't break the bank. Okay, well, that makes sense. <laughs> we, we talked about supplements. I think it bears repeating. These are things that we espouse on the show all the time, but obviously, diet uh, is going to be essential to stress levels, right? Oh, of course. Garbage in, garbage out works in computers. It also works in your diet. If you take in bad quality food, you're not giving your body the tools to heal itself and to work properly. And stress is just one more thing your body has to tackle. Junk food is going to make it harder for your body to handle stress. Makes sense. And, you know, sleep, 
an exercise that's oh, yeah. obvious. I mean, we've said it many times before. Working out, you're going to, if you do enough of it and you work up a sweat, you're going to, the endorphins are going to come yeah. out and good right. night's sleep is going to help too. Definitely. But with exercise, you also want to make sure you do it regularly. Yes. Because regular exercise, there's a lot of clinical trials showing that regular exercise, it doesn't matter what the exercise is, regular exercise does help your body handle stress both in the moment. Yes. And going forward, it increases your capacity for stress relief. Yes. And and by regularly, we don't mean once a week. We mean three, four, five times a week. Oh, yeah. But it doesn't have to be ridiculous. You don't have to end up looking like the Hulk. Right. Just enough to get you going on a repeated basis. Okay. We have time for one more question, and that is stress inducers that we should avoid. It may, oh. seem, it may seem obvious, but what would you recommend there? The big ones are the obvious ones. Alcohol cigarettes, smoking of any kind, even vaping, what they all do is they reduce your body's capacity because they stress it on a regular basis. So think about it this way. You're stressing your body chemically by having alcohol or by smoking or by vaping. And by reducing that or eliminating it, you're giving your body extra capacity to handle stress. Fantastic. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It is always my pleasure. We're going to hear back from Joel next month, but we've got to take a short break. Uh, When we return, we're going to discuss why the intention behind your workout is so important on The Tonic. At Peak Human, they're dedicated to getting you to live 100 times your potential now. They provide access to the most advanced medical technologies available in the world right here in the GTA. DNA testing, hormones, neurobiofeedback, regenerative treatments are just some of the specialized services available to you that previously were only available to the rich and famous. Visit them now at peakhuman.ca and book your free consultation. Vital Directives is a center committed to helping people ignite their innate healing power and remove the barriers of fear that keep them in pain. Through changing their clients' mindset and teaching them to connect with their body, the Vital Directives step-by-step process helps them focus, feel safe, and get immediate relief. Their process involves removing the physical limitations induced by chronic pain while creating personalized, high-level self-care and preventative measures. They believe that significantly reducing chronic pain is just the first step. Through powerful physical exercises and mindset shifts, coupled with solid support system, they inspire people to transform from the inside out. For more information, visit their website at vitaldirectives.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Roxandra Mitria is a mind-body coach, author, and the founder of Vital Directives, a leading center for vibrant and healthy living, preventative health, wellness, growth, and rejuvenation. The Vital Directives tagline, Awaken Your Body, Celebrate Life, is her motto. Roxandra has an unwavering belief in each person's inherent capacity for healing. Having had her own experience with the limitations created by chronic pain, she created a unique process that allowed her to heal her body. She has dedicated her professional life to teaching her clients the process that will ignite their innate healing capacity, significantly reducing chronic pain while developing skills to create and maintain pain-free, active lives. Welcome back to The Tonic. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we talk about actual workouts here on the show a lot. We talk about the types of exercises people should do and warm-ups and warm-downs and conceptualizing the best way to maximize physical strength and mobility for all ages. Mm -hmm. But we're going to talk about something else today. We're going to talk about 
how you conceptualize and your workouts and your activities, right? Yes. It's about mindset as far as you're concerned. Yes. So what are the mistakes that people are making that are derailing their workouts that you think they could change? I believe that there are such things as working out too much. Yes. I'm guilty Pushing it to the limit. I'm guilty. Not doing enough. Okay. Doing the wrong type of exercise for what's best for you. Okay. Not understanding your limitations. Being misinformed. Right. Or not having the right information. Right. So, I mean, there's a lot of that out there, right? I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people uh, think that if they're going to, for example, if they're going to do a HIIT class or they're going to do CrossFit, you know, that th- that they're necessarily going to get stronger, faster, but that may not be the case. It may be that they're going to bulk up, but what they were really looking to do was to create longer muscles and leaner mm-hmm. muscles, particularly mm-hmm. women don't necessarily want to bulk up by doing weightlifting. Yes. Right? And Yeah. And also has to do with the fact that if you don't have the awareness first of what your body's capable of doing, and the awareness has to do with the image that the brain has about the body in space, then you're doing things wrong. You think you're doing the exercises, but you're you're doing something that's very far away from right. what the exercise. Well, needs to uh, be. I mean, one of the things you mentioned is is working working out so hard that you're actually physically doing damage to your body, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to. In order to build muscle, for example, if you're doing weightlifting, you have to break down the muscle in order to build the muscle. That's true. There's an element of that, but that yes. doesn't mean you should be screwing around with your joints or causing sharp pains when you're working out, right? Yes. There's a distinction between the ache of exercising your muscles and a sharp pain from doing something improperly. Oh, definitely. But if, if you don't, if you haven't educated your body and your mind to work together, you don't know the difference. You just go and push and push and push and you think right. you've done something good for yourself. Rest days are just as important as the work days, right? Absolutely. The body needs the time to recover. Okay. So um, one of the things you talked about are punishment workouts, right? (laughs) So what do you mean by that? Okay. So um, let's say that your goal is to maintain a certain um, level of um, weight Mm -hmm. and you want or you want to decrease your weight. And you find yourself at the party and you have the second glass of wine or the first glass of wine if you don't drink any and some dessert. Yep. And it's you, never just some dessert. Let's be honest. Okay, right? the whole. Yeah, you ate the whole cake. The whole cake. You're, you feel guilty about it while you're doing it. Yes. And next morning when you wake up. Yeah. You feel terrible and you're ready to punish yourself for being bad. And that punishment is at the work, gym. At the yeah. gym. Yeah. You go out for a run or you, whatever the workout of your choice is. But the thing is this. Your focus then is on punishing yourself. Right. Right. It's not on the form. Right. It's not on working well in your body. It's right. not... I'm going to exhaust myself because I want to burn a thousand calories. Yeah, as because a, I was so bad. Right. I've got I've to work those cookies off. I've, mm-hmm. done, I've been there. I've done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly with new technology, with Fitbits, you can sort of, you know, or or the bikes that, that, you know, purport to show you how many calories you burned, right? I I spin at a facility where they show your scores on screen. They show you how fast you're going and and how much, uh, you know, what kind of uh, calories you're burning. Mm -hmm. And for somebody like me, that's a a bad thing. I become hyper competitive uh, and I have to be number one in the class. So so your focus in that moment is not you. 
No. It's not in your body. Okay, so if I, oh, whoa, what did I feel here? I'm pushing a little bit too hard and now I cannot control what's happening in my spine. Are my shoulders in a good position? Am I pushing with the right muscles in my foot, in, in my leg, rather right. than overcompensating? Right. Is your form proper, right? Because, yes. Because that's where, in, for taking the spinning example, most people don't position themselves properly. They're not driving with their bum and their, and their thigh muscles, which are the biggest muscles mm-hmm. in the body. Mm-hmm. They're propped up on their arms, leaning forward, which is a recipe for a hurt back, right? And, and shoulders and yeah, neck, and so, depending on the person, for exactly. sure. Exactly. So why do we work out? The way I'm, I think about it, I go and I do my workouts for staying in balance, mm-hmm. for clearing my mind. Mm-hmm. If your mind is busy, if you worked a lot at your desk, the way you bring yourself imbalance the fastest is to go and move your body and then you're calmer you can meditate if you want but it's easier an easier process Um, there's um, a rebalancing aspect to the workout there is a realignment let's say you were on a plane or on a car ride or sitting in a chair sitting in a chair the whole day then you know what to do to minimize the the wear and tear that those things are bringing to our bodies and to create more space and to feel better, to get better blood flow and realign your your body. I use it because it helps me sleep. Like, I think it's all interconnected, right? Yes. You really can't lose weight through exercise, but it certainly helps. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're trying to lose weight, you're going to have to regulate your intake. Of course. But certainly your metabolism will be affected the more exercise that you do, you get peace of mind. I do my best thinking after I exercise, my mm-hmm. frame of mind. If I don't exercise for two days, I get grumpier, even grumpier than you hear me on the radio, folks. <laughs> I, if I'm not exercising, it gets real ugly. Um, so why is it important to be uh, engaged in our workout and be mindful about it? If we're not focused on how we move and how good a relationship we have with our bodies in movement, then over time, this lack of awareness and lack of education leads to the wear and tear that we see today in, in, in many, many people with right. destroyed backs and hips that are replaced and knees that are replaced. A lot of that is preventable with awareness and a good, solid education. So what's the point to go and work out and that to only contribute to a faster wear and tear right. and the deterioration of, of your joints and your body? I understand what you're saying. I, I think of it this way. Like the stage of your life should dictate how you are moving and exercising and what it means to your overall health. Mm-hmm. So, for example, now my case was unique, but I lost my weight in my late 30s and early 40s. Mm-hmm. And for me, I needed to do a certain amount of exercise in order to achieve those goals. Yes. And the, the matrix of exercise, which included a little bit of yoga, a lot more aerobic work, uh, spinning, running and that sort of thing, and a little bit of weight work. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm in my 50s, I've actually scaled back on a lot of the aerobics and mm-hmm. I'm doing a lot more strength training because it helps with the bones and the joints yes. and the muscles, right? Yes. So to be mindful, to think about what you're doing and not just say, okay, I'm going to go spinning four times a week or I'm going to go swimming. You actually have to take a step back and say to yourself, okay, what's really good for me? What do I need, right? Yes. The activities that we choose to do. Right. But I'm going to take it one step further Okay. and say, it doesn't matter what stage we are at in our lives. The direction of all our workouts is to preserve the wellness in our bodies, the quality of our joints and our tissues, not slowly work over decades to deteriorate them. Right. Okay. And and, and let's let's focus in on the joints and the fascia for the last Mm -hmm. little part here, because Mm -hmm. I know that's your specialty and I know your philosophy is centered on on the 
importance of the fascia. Mm-hmm. So, so when you're being mindful about your workouts, what does it mean in that context? It means that you're not overtaxing your body. It means that you you pay attention to the spine alignment and to the alignment of your hips. It means that you start to recognize that, oh, okay, I did this exercise yesterday, but today it feels different. Why? Oh, look at me. I'm not aligned. Um, it has to do with how we move and how we treat our bodies as we're doing our workouts. Okay. So when we're talking about mindful, part of it, I think, if I understand you correctly, is form is all important, right? Always. Is there more to it than that? The form and there's an education process that has to do with awareness. There are certain steps and okay. that most people don't have this type of education and then their workouts get you know, more damaging with time. Okay, so what sort of things do people need to be aware of? We only have time for like this last little bit. It has to do with understanding how the body feels, first of all, and then learning how to envision the process that you're taking your body through first. Envision the exercise, let's say, or the movement. Yes. Make the intention to do it and then act. Okay. So in other words, instead of throwing yourself into it, Yes. It, it's sort of considering what you want to achieve by that movement. So yes. so even, in, let's say, in the example of weightlifting, right, a proper form, you might be able to lift another 20 pounds over your head if you use your body's momentum in a way that, let's say, an Olympic weightlifter would do, mm-hmm. as opposed to just trying to, like, grunt through it and, and, and just, you know, do a bunch of reps, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Okay. Well, fantastic. That's very interesting. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Okay, it was very, very good to be here. Yeah, you, it, was a, it was a really interesting discussion. You'll come back next month? Yes. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Did you know that only 22% of Canadians have access to their health information online and 73% of those who don't want it? The Access 2022 movement aims to promote a future where all Canadians have access to their health information through the availability of digital health tools and services. The vision of Access 2022 is to bring together the expertise of the entire healthcare system and technology sector to deliver digital services that will empower patients and improve health outcomes. To learn more and join the movement, visit access2022.ca. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Michael Green is the president and CEO of Canada Health Infoway. He's a creative, strategic thinker who has an international reputation and a proven track record of transforming healthcare through the use of digital health. He has leveraged the international research and innovation to advance the digital health agenda, create jobs, and stimulate economic growth in Canada. Welcome to The Tonic, sir. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. By 2030, one out of every four Canadians will be a senior, and with that comes the presumption that many of us will need more healthcare assistance. So what is Digital Health Infoway's mandate regarding older Canadians and the future of healthcare? 
Well, I, that's a very good point, and we're well aware of the aging population. And I think this is where digital technology can really help, because one of the key issues that Canada faces is easy access to services, and also avoiding unnecessary visits and doing some of the things you can do on your smartphone rather than actually having to go and turn up at the doctor's office. So, for example, getting a repeat prescription. Yeah. It would be so much easier if you could do that on your smartphone. Or, um, you know, at, at having a simple call with a doctor, FaceTime, on your phone as well. So those type of things are certainly going to make life easier for, for everybody, and in particular, I think, for seniors. I would agree. I, I mean, just getting a refill can be such an ordeal if you have to go into the office. So that, that makes tons of sense. But I would imagine, you know, there's some other things, services that might need to be cut back and, and people who may think that they want to see their doctor, they, they may feel awkwardly about not being able to see them face to face. I guess that's part of the challenge that you face. Yeah, I think one of the things is that digital health can really help doctors use their time more effectively so that they would have more time for the face-to-face interactions that they need to do. But I think that, you know, many visits, and everybody's aware of this, you know, if you queue up for um, a long time in the doctor's office and then maybe only have a couple of minutes with the doctor, if you need to check, check your lab tests, if you want to make an appointment, why can't you book it online? So I think having more ease of use and convenience with the system, just like people do in other areas of their consumer life, would make a real difference. What is Access 2022? What's the role and what's it doing? Well, the role of that program stemmed out of some funding we got from the federal government to help improve digital access to healthcare. And the program is basically aimed at making it easier for people to connect digitally with their health system. As you know, in Canada, every province runs its own health system. But there are a lot of common issues that are the same for everybody. And what we're trying to do is be a catalyst to make things happen quicker and more easily for people um, and achieve better results in a shorter time frame, working with the provinces and the various governments. So, uh, you know, there are challenges for for our health care. Do you feel that the system is ready for the rapidly aging population or is there work to be done? I think there's certainly work to be done, but there's a lot of recognition of the issues that we have. Many people who are seniors have more than one um, disease. They may have diabetes, they may have arthritis, for example, and other issues, health issues as well. And these are very complex to manage, and doctors need to have information on their patients in an easy format that they can access. Often, when you have chronic diseases, you're seeing more than one health caregiver. And so, for those different caregivers to bear the share information is really important. Okay, and, and you know, we, we're talking about digital access to services, so that presumes a, a, a sort of a convenience in the home uh, or, or mobile. Why is that so important for a country like Canada? I think it's important because of the aging population, but also because we have a big geography. Right. And so in, if you're living in a remote area, you may have to travel several hours or even days or take a flight to go to a hospital and see a physician, get a test done. So it's really possible now to do some of these tests at home. 
and uh, also follow-up. So, for example, if someone's been in hospital with a chronic disease, um, they can be discharged home and they can be monitored remotely by their physicians by using equipment that's very easy to use in the home, and that avoids a lot of unnecessary hospital visits. With your mandate and what you're hoping to accomplish, where do you see the future of Canadian healthcare? What's it going to look like for seniors? I think the future of the healthcare will look more connected. I think there should be better coordination and certainly there'll be much more use of tools like the internet, like smartphones, in really helping to make care more seamless and easier to use. The key thing, I think, really, is to get better communication between the patient and their doctor, be able to share information easier, book appointments, be able to look at lab tests, and also empower patients to be able to control their own health by having access to their health information at their fingertips. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. We're going to turn our attention to our other guest. Zaina Kayat is a future strategist at SE Health and an adjunct professor of health sector strategy at the Rotman School of Business. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Jamie? So um, what does your experience tell you about why the digitalization of health is so important for, for Canadians? So in healthcare, there's very rarely a new technology or way of doing things that actually hits on three ways to open up new value, uh, and digital does that. So it's got three places where it's so important. One is it'll make healthcare a lot lower cost, and that's really important because we're constrained for resources. Second is uh, it actually makes the experience for you and I and our family and our kids more uh, like what we're used to experiencing in every other part of our 21st century life. And there's a lot of data around a better healthcare experience is actually better healthcare. And then the third is it actually can lead to way better quality and results because we're now informing our decisions based on real data instead of uh, a lot of stuff sitting on paper that is not easy to access. Yeah, that all makes sense. Um, Do you feel, though, that with respect to convenience and the way that Canadians consume their health care, there might be a little bit of pushback from an older Canadian who's used to sort of the more traditional way of doing things? Yeah, that's a common uh, concern we hear. And, And just to be clear, all I do all day is design new ways of care for older adults. So I know this space very well. It's actually a myth. And I think we need to stop propagating the myth because whether you're 80 years old or you're 18 years old, any age, any type of patient, there's a segmentation. Some are going to absolutely embrace digital modes of communicating and engaging, and others don't want anything to do with it. But it's not skewed to age at all, and the data shows that. And so the, the message is less around, oh, we're going to switch everything that happens today in an analog way to digital, and it's more the idea of we're introducing choice that meet patients and their families where their needs and expectations are. And if their choice is that they still want to do things, let's call it the traditional way, then that should be an option, but it shouldn't be the only option. Well, that makes sense. I I guess I'm more looking at more of the technology gap that some seniors can have uh, in not being comfortable, let's say, with using a a smartphone. And I'm speaking anecdotally with some of the seniors that I know who are less comfortable with the modern technology. But again, there's some seniors, but there's also some 25-year-olds who are less comfortable with the modern technology. I'd like to meet them, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, uh, we just thought the other day, to be honest, 
the younger generation, they don't use a, a browser and a desktop. No, that's even true. An iPad anymore. They only pretty much know text and emojis. So there was a great story where a new tool for intergenerational, so connecting students to older adults around housing. It was the seniors who could whiz through everything because it was on an iPad and a desktop, and the younger people didn't know how to use those tools. That is, <laughs> so I, uh, that's yeah. frightening to me, but I'm sure I'm sure it's true, but that scares me. It is what it is. So I think there is definitely a, a segmentation, and then we have to remember with older adults, the customer is actually more and more not only them, it's a combi- combined unit with their caregiver. That's you and me who are taking care of our parents. And we are digitally savvy and we are tech savvy and we are busy and we don't live in the same city often as our parents. And so we need to be able to communicate in a new uh, range of modalities and those are not available to us and care suffers. I just want to note one thing though. There is another issue, which is maybe what you were leaning at, less around savviness and more around what we call the digital determinants of health. And that is absolutely an, an issue, but it is age agnostic. So if having superior care requires you to have a smartphone with telephony and data and you can't access that, that's a fundamental kind of equity issue that is going to need to be dealt with. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and, and what sort of tools uh, do you foresee? I, I, it's interesting to, to speak about them sort of generally, but what, yeah. actual, what actual tools might be available to Canadians? So I try to segment the digital tools that are, again, none of this is um, future. This is already in place in most jurisdictions. It's just the normal way they do care. We're a little bit behind in Canada, which is why Access 22 and and what InfoWay is doing will help. I I put them in at three levels. So kind of level one tools is very basic, digitizing, you know, your information, things like booking appointments, just basic digitizing a bunch of analog processes. That allows things to be shared easily. It allows you know, people to be informed in real time uh, and lets us actually measure data in real time instead of waiting for you know, a big clinical trial to publish results four years after the care has right. been done. Yeah. That's basic. But if you don't do that, you can't get to level two and three. Level two would be, to me, more digital tools that take activities that used to be relegated to a physical institution and really time-shared like diagnostics, clinic visits, those types of things, and now allows you to decentralize those to kind of what we call a care anywhere option, whether that's in the home, at the shopper's drug mart, uh, in the car, on the train. It just allows you to de-physicalize, decentralize, and open up options because you're not constrained by time, distance, and space, and labor. Uh, And we're barely scraping the surface in Canada on, on that level of just, we call that virtual care. And we, um, we only have time for, for one quick part. So what, yeah. what's number three quickly? Number three would be the emerging tools, AI, virtual reality, uh, you know, all these new emerging technologies that will actually change the whole way medicine is practiced, not just digitizing a bunch of analog processes, which level one and two are doing. Fantastic. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. All right. Thanks for having me. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss advanced care planning on The Tonic. Did you know that you and your company can make an impact in the community by simply ordering lunch? Big or small, it's now possible for companies that require catering services all across the GTA to give back effortlessly. 
thanks to a unique partnership bringing together a local caterer, Chef's Catering, and Red Door Family Shelter. For every meal ordered from the Red Door special menu, one meal is given back to the women and children seeking refuge at Red Door. Visit chefscatering.ca to discover the menu and support your community. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. My next guest, Chad Hammond, is a cultural psychologist in the field of chronic illness and palliative care and the program manager for Advanced Care Planning in Canada, an initiative overseen by the Canadian Hospice Palliative Care Association. Say that three times. Welcome to the show, Chad. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. So the organization you work with, uh, Speak Up Advanced Care Planning, conducted an online poll earlier this year in February. And uh, they were canvassing Canadians about their planning for sort of end of life issues and for injury and for chronic illness. Mm -hmm. And they found that eight in 10 Canadians have given end of life care some thought, but less than one in five actually have a plan. Was that surprising to you? Um, not exactly, no. Um, we have, uh, the Speak Up initiative has been around for a while, and we have done this type of messaging and campaigning to raise awareness around advanced care planning, and, and a lot of what we learn through our conversations with people, through other research that's done out there around advanced care planning, that that's fairly normal, that a lot of people have thought about this, think it's important, um, but don't necessarily uh, follow through in terms of the actions. They don't seek out, they don't initiate these conversations. And I think perhaps a, a big part of that is that they're not sure exactly how to start these conversations. They don't necessarily right. have the, um, the resources, the support, the guidance, uh, those sorts of uh, instructions or, or supports to seek out and start these conversations. Right, and, and we're talking about, you know, complicated issues. So I think maybe we should start at the beginning. Sure. Let's define what advanced care planning is for those who don't know. Sure. Well, an easy way to do it is to just flip the words backwards. So it's planning for care in advance. (laughs) <laughs> so, <laughs> essentially, it, it is a bit... So, so maybe you should th- rethink the name of the charity, but anyways, go on. <laughs> yeah, touche. Um, but it, it, in, in essence, um, it's really about having conversations uh, with people um, close to you, your loved ones, uh, but also health professionals and other people who might be involved in your care later on, really talking about uh, your values, uh, your beliefs, your preferences, the things that are really most important to you or would be most important to you if the time came when you were going through a health crisis or a serious illness or a serious injury uh, where you weren't able to communicate those things. Or, or perhaps you're under stress and, and your decision making might be different, right? Absolutely, yes. When those situations arise, it's very difficult to make often very big decisions at the moment when there's a lot of uncertainty and anxiety around it. Absolutely. Right. And, and sort of the practicalities of planning would would include living wills, powers of attorney, uh, instructions to family members about desires and hopes on, on how treatment is administered and, and you know, how painkillers might be administered and things like that, right? Right. Yeah. The term living wills is a bit of an import from the U.S. That's the right. word that they often use. Uh, in Canada, we 
more so refer to advanced care planning um, conversations and, and that type of stuff. It's really, it comes down to exactly as you said, um, talking about what you would like in certain situations, but also, you know, that broader sort of existential level of, you know, what is most important to you? What is at stake for you if you were in a situation where, you know, these decisions need to be made, where considering CPR or feeding tubes or those sorts of things. But just in general, it's, it's really giving guidance on the approach of care. You know, how should people care for you? What would really align with who you are as a person, your personal preferences, you know, maybe your religious and spiritual beliefs, um, your cultural practices and traditions. All those things are part of who you are and what you would like to receive in care. Right. And, and, I, and I presume one of those issues would be like, who who do you want to be facilitating all this? Right. Like, who do you trust exactly. with with these huge issues? It might be a spouse, but it might be a child or it might be a friend or, or somebody else. It, you know, it isn't necessarily clear cut. Absolutely. Yeah. So we we refer to that usually as a substitute decision maker. That's right. Um, that would be the person that you designate as the person who would make decisions if you were too incapacitated to be able to make those decisions. So, um, yeah, it is, you know, people might assume that they would be their spouse right off the bat that would make those decisions, but maybe uh, there's somebody else that they would want to to put in that. Um, you know, different, different cultural communities uh, place the decision-making power in different people's hands. Yeah, so, I'm not, I'm not sure I want my wife to make those decisions. I'm, pre- <laughs> I'm pretty sure she would turn off the life support. I- <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I trust her. I don't know if my kids are any better. I don't know who I'm going to go to. I mean, we may have a discussion after we record here to, to discuss who I should be speaking with. But who are Canadians? What did you find out? Who are they speaking with? A very good question. Um, so we did ask, we asked two questions on that. We asked who they think is most important to have these conversations with, and then also who have they actually talked to. Right. And that's an interesting comparison to see that. Right. So, I mean, it should be no surprise to anybody that the majority of people really focus on family and friends, really think it's important to talk to them about their, their values and their wishes. Um, but we also asked about healthcare professionals, who people also saw as important in this. A bit less so seen as important would be lawyers, financial planners, and spiritual or religious advisors. Those were a bit of a surprise to me because those are important people to be part of this conversation, but maybe it's not as obvious that they would be part of the conversation compared to, say, somebody who's actually providing your health care or somebody who's making decisions on your behalf. I, I can tell you, because I, I used to practice law for 20 years, I can mm-hmm. tell you that every lawyer I know, it's at the front of their mind because the legal issues abound and, and the fights that come about between the various people that are trying to struggle with these decisions for their loved ones who are in, in distress, You need the clarity that is provided by a legal document as to, okay, this person is responsible for finances this person is responsible for medical care. Delineating those is, is crucial, I think. Absolutely, yeah. And that is, that's a big part of what we message here at, at Speak Up is, you know, having those conversations and, and expressing your wishes is important, but it's also equally important to pick the people that you think would be best positioned to right. make those decisions on your behalf. Right. I mean, so y- your spouse might be the person who you are closest with, but but they may not be great in crisis or they may not right. be great decision makers. And your kids, you know, have a different interest and may want to see their parents survive in a certain way. But, you know, you may not want to burden your children or, you know, w- 
even yeah. numbers are tough. Odd um, numbers, odd numbers are easier because you know majority rules. But but if you have two, that can be really challenging for two people to come to consensus on on these issues. Absolutely, and you know what? A lot of this comes down to is who have you actually talked to? Right. <laughs> you know, and so yeah. people. Everybody around you may have an idea in their mind as to what you would want and think that they know that they, they have the right answers. But if you've never had the conversation, that really all just comes down to guesswork. Exactly. Or yeah. to those little like tidbits where somebody says, oh, you know, if I'm a vegetable, pull the plug. Right. What does that mean? Exactly? Yeah, no, no, exactly. I, I think you really, everybody should be turning their minds to this and, and really articulating it to those who you think are going to be making those decisions for you. Mm-hmm. So, so when do we think we should be considering advanced care planning? So we tend to message that these conversations should happen early. You know, this is not something you wait until you're very ill and in situations of lots of stress. Um, This should be something that people talk about over several years, well before any crisis happens. Um, But we didn't expect that to be really the the main idea or assumption that people had about advanced care planning. But we did actually see that with uh, the survey that we had. Um, You know, a good portion, uh, about 40%, said that we should be talking about this anywhere between our mid-30s and our early 50s. That should be when we start these conversations. Yep. So not waiting until, you know, much longer in, in the future. Over a third of people said that they think these conversations should happen while a person is healthy. So those were actually quite surprising in a good way for us, right. um, sentiments that people had. Yeah, I, I understand like early 50s because presumably your kids, you, you're, you're sort of seeing what kind of adults they're going to be and whether they're capable of helping you with these decisions. But you also kind of see who your partner has become and whether their health issues or their ability to cope with these issues, you know, whether they're the right person. I think if you did it earlier, your situation is going to be so much different that it almost is rendered meaningless. So I, I don't even, yeah. I would think even 30s is too early, but I, who knows, maybe. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the big thing is just making these conversations normal. For it to be done well in advance before there's all of these other big things looming over people and all those pressures and stresses and uncertainties, you know, to just make it a normal part of thinking ahead. Advanced care planning is kind of its own thing, but it's all part of a bigger wheel of life planning, you know, making wills, planning for your estate and your retirement and all that stuff, investing in RSPs or buying insurance, all that stuff is really setting ourselves up in a good way for the future. And advanced care planning is really a part of that. Um, Those things you do well before you're thinking, you know, I've only got a few months left. People, well, I mean, for myself, I did my will in my mid-20s. Right. Um, But I didn't do any advanced care planning in my 20s. It's a matter of perceptions about what we see as just those normal processes we go through as adults to prepare for the future. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you go to a lawyer to have a will prepared or a paralegal, I think they will ask you about powers of attorney and these mm-hmm. so, these sorts of documents that you can sort of fill out simultaneously with your will uh, because, you know, you've turned your mind to that aspect of your life. Exactly, yeah. So we only have time for one more question, and that is for those listeners who we've engaged to start thinking about uh, advanced care planning, where should they go for resources if they want to learn more or start acting upon some of these decisions? Absolutely. So we do have uh, a website. Uh, it's advancedcareplanning.ca, and that houses a lot of the resources that we've developed or you know, uh, some of our partners or other people have developed that help support 
these conversations. So there's things, there's like videos and posters that really help people just get a sense for what advanced care planning is. And then there's more uh, supportive resources for, like for example, we have conversation starters to give people ideas about how you might broach the topic if you're anxious about that part of it. But we also have workbooks and guides that walk people through the steps of things to think through and and jot down and people to consider as their substitute decision maker. So that's all on the, our, our website and we do also have an interactive workbook that you can find through that website where you can complete it online and it creates a PDF that you can then print out and, or email or, or what have you for the people who prefer the digital formats. Fantastic. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us on The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by Joel Thuna and other fantastic writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we'll discuss the keto diet, the hidden opioid crisis, and your fall fitness routine. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.